Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Joe Gleason about the astrology of Mercury and some of its significations and meanings uh, in astrology in general. So, hey, Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's been a while. This is your, what, like second, third appearance, I think, on the show, but we're doing this episode, and then you're going to be joining us for the forecast later this month as well. Yes, I'm so excited for that. I am too. I'm less excited about the astrology of early July with the Mars-Saturn opposition, but I am still excited about doing that forecast episode. Yeah, same here. I don't love that for us, but um, but here we are. It's going to be fun. All right. Well, let me read off the data. So today is Thursday, June 10th, 2021 at 1.07 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. I'm not sure what episode this is, but it's somewhere in the early 300s, I, I suspect. So this is going to be the third installment in our planetary series where I'm going through each of the, the planets in astrology and doing a deep dive into their significations and their meanings by reading through a series of astrological texts or ex excerpts from astrological texts from different ancient and modern astrologers in order to get some insight about how astrologers conceptualized each of the planets uh, over the past 2,000 years or so. So I already did uh, two episodes, one on the moon and then one on the sun last month. So this is our next episode on the planet Mercury. And I tried to do, you, you watched the last two episodes, I think, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so I've, I've been trying to do a series where I have somebody who has like a heavy emphasis of placements. Um, previously, it's been the rising signs. So in the moon episode, Israel was a Cancer rising, and then in the sun episode, Demetra was a Leo rising. I'm going to break that with a slight uh, break, just making an exception for you. You actually have Leo rising, but you have a stellium in Virgo, right? That is correct. Okay, so you're kind of almost like a, like an honorary Virgo rising or Mercury ruled nativity in some ways, right? Yeah, that's what I've been told. <laughs> that's how it feels. <laughs> okay. Good. I like that. So I think yeah. I think that'll work out just fine. So you're going to help me with the Mercury episode. Um, any preliminaries before we jump into it with some of the the significations of Mercury? Uh, I can't think of any preliminaries. All right. Well, let me show a little diagram that helps to get us oriented with the symbol or the glyph for Mercury. And this is made by um, our graphic designer, Paula Bellomini. So here it is showing the symbol for Mercury, which is like a circle on top of a cross, and it has two tiny little horns or antenna on top of it for those listening to the audio version. I have no idea how, what that's going to sound like or what kind of mental image that will create in your mind, but just try to picture that. So Mercury has its domicile in the sign of Gemini and also its secondary domicile in the sign of Virgo. And then it has its uh, detriment or antithesis, as I call it, in the signs of Sagittarius and Pisces. Mercury is kind of weird because it has its exaltation in one of its domiciles in the sign of Virgo, and then it has its uh, depression or fall in the sign opposite to that, which is the sign of Pisces. So those are the basic, basic essential dignities and abilities of the planet Mercury in traditional astrology, which is pretty straightforward, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty straightforward. It is unique that Mercury's um, Mercury has uh, its exaltation and domicile as well as antithesis and depression in the same sign. Um, but I feel like we'll talk more about that later too. Yeah, uh, well, as somebody with a lot of Virgo placements, I think I think you 
you can attest to. Are you you appreciate that? I do. <laughs> I really do. Um, I have some other not so super fun things going on in Virgo. So having like a domiciled and exalted Virgo uh, Mercury is a nice ruler to have over those uh, challenges. So for sure. All right. Well, let's get oriented by jumping into our first set of significations from one of the earliest authors who um, has a long extended discussion about the significations of the planets, which is Vedius Valens, who lived in the second century in Egypt and wrote a textbook called The Anthology. So here is, I'll share this for those watching the uh, video version of this episode, the significations of Mercury according to Valens from my translation in my book, Hellenistic Astrology. So I'll just read it off and then we can like stop and talk about it occasionally. So Valens says, the star of Mercury signifies education, writings, disputation, speech, brotherhood, interpretation, the office of the herald, numbers, calculations, geometry, commerce, youth, play, theft, community, messages, service, profit, discoveries, following, contest, wrestling, declamation, sealing, sending messages, weighing, suspense, testing, hearing, and versatility. Um, and he keeps going on and on, actually. This is like the longest paragraph of all of the planets uh, when Valens talks about each of the seven traditional planets as Mercury. He just has like a ton of significations for Mercury. So I think that's actually a common thing, right? Is just in, in pretty much every astrological tradition, Mercury covers a lot of ground, I think, just as a as a basis or a starting point. Yeah, definitely. It's it's interesting because Mercury is so flexible and adaptable in a general sense that it's almost like Mercury kind of can flex into any role or maybe not any role, but a large variety of roles. And you really see that with this like massive like wall of text <laughs> balance has for Mercury. We can see kind of a common thread going through it, but I mean, this is a huge variety. Uh, I, I really love that suspense is in there too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Suspense. Well, I'm in suspense right now because I'm sure people are uh, wanting to hear the rest. So I'll keep going. I'll keep taking breaks, breather occasionally. All right. So versatility. He then goes on and Valence says, um, he is the bestower of critical thinking and judgment, lord of brothers and of younger children, and the author of all things pertaining to the market and the craft of banking. Properly speaking, he makes temple builders, modelers, sculptors, doctors, teachers, lawyers, orators, philosophers, architects, musicians, diviners, sacrificers, augurs, dream interpreters, braiders, weavers, those who are methodical, and those who are in charge of managing wars or strategic actions, and those who utilize paradoxes and craftiness in calculations or false reasoning, those who are strong performers or mime actors, making their livelihood from display, while still wandering and roaming and unstable, those with knowledge of the heavens or those who seek to become knowledgeable, undertaking the marvelous work with pleasure and contentment for the sake of the honor and the benefit it brings. I think he's just like referring to astrologers there. Mm -hmm. um, and it keeps going. For this star holds the power of many pursuits, 
granting occupations in accordance with the variations of the zodiacal signs or the interweavings of the different configurations of the stars. For some, it gives knowledge, while for others, brokerage. Service for some, while it produces trade or teaching for others. And for some, agriculture or temple keeping or public office. Moreover, for some, it grants the ability to exercise authority or leasing rentals or labor contracting or rhythmic performance or managing public services or even bodyguarding or wearing the linen robes of the gods or bestowing the pomp of powerful men. It brings about all the irregularities in our fortunes and many distractions from our goals, and even more so when this star is upon signs or degrees ruled by malefics, in which case things may even take a turn for the worse. Of the parts of the body, it rules the hands, the shoulders, the fingers, the joints, the belly, the hearing, the windpipe, the intestines, the tongue. Of substances, it is lord of copper and all coinage, giving, taking, for the god is common. And that is that is Valens' significations of, of Mercury. So, and he kind of notes that it, it sort of adapts to um, whatever zodiacal sign or whatever other planets it touches. That's one of the things about Mercury that comes up frequently in the astrological, especially in the traditional astrologers, is the malleability of Mercury and its tendency to take on some of the qualities of whatever planets it's closely configured to in the chart, or especially whatever sign of the zodiac it's located in, even more so uh, than other planets, perhaps. Yeah, certainly. Um, I was thinking about this, I think, yesterday when I was kind of mentally preparing for this episode and thinking about the receptivity of the moon um, and the moon kind of collecting light and like um, translating the light of other planets uh, to one another and down to the sublunar sphere. But Mercury has, Mercury isn't necessarily receptive, I wouldn't say, but does have this um, ability to kind of take on its environment in a way that's really unique and really interesting. And at first it almost sounds like a superpower. It's like, dude, cool. It's like this planet that can just be good at kind of anything, anywhere it is. But I love how at the end Valen says, basically like Mercury will also distract you and like make things unstable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's, there's an interesting kind of emphasis there on the lack of consistency with Mercury that kind of is the double-edged sword of that um, variety or adaptability or flexibility. Yeah, that's a really good point. It is. There's a lot of similarities um, in the ancient tradition, especially even more so than in modern astrology and ancient astrology. We can see a lot more close parallels in some ways between the moon and Mercury because they are the two fastest moving visible planetary bodies or, or planets, just to use like the short form for uh, celestial bodies that are used in astrology. And the moon, you know, zips around the zodiac in a month, uh, but Mercury also moves pretty fast through each of the signs of the zodiac, not quite that fast, but compared to most other planets, Mercury is the next fastest planet after the moon. And so as a result of that, you see some some interplay and some similarities between their significations and in terms of connections with things like messengers or things that move quickly um, in ancient astrology. Yeah, certainly. Like that's such a good point to note is that Mercury is the next fastest celestial body aside from the moon. Um, 
But a core difference is, of course, the moon does not have retrograde phases. So there's still kind of a rhythm to the lunar cycle, even though, you know, you go outside and look at the moon every night and it's going to look different every single night. And that really kind of drives home the changeability of the moon. Uh, but with Mercury, you know, the moon isn't like stopping and going backwards and going forwards again, like three times a year. And Mercury is. So there's this interesting component of this instability. Um, the ancients did tend to view that which was more consistent as more divine. And so no doubt they look at this planet that zips around the zodiac and spins like not very long in each sign and then retrogrades all the time as quite unstable and uh, quite far from the divine in, in many ways. Yeah, I think that's why Valens has that digression where he's otherwise talking about Mercury signifying relatively positive things, um, but then at one point he talks about it you know, distracting us and leading us astray and things like that. And I think it's because of that that weird thing that it does in stationing retrograde and making that sudden um, turn occasionally when it's going through the zodiac where it seems like it's going forward and then there's this anomaly and all of a sudden Mercury will start moving backwards as if as if it's like a star in the sky that starts backtracking or like moonwalking across the sky for three weeks um, every few months. Yeah, yeah. The the frequency, the fact that we can depend on that happening at least three times a year is is pretty unique. Um, it's a little different with the outer planets or the slower planets because they're retrograde for so much of the time. Um, but Mercury's just a greater speed just makes it so apparent when those retrograde cycles happen. So, yeah. Right. Um, and going back to that idea of um, one of the things about Mercury that comes up, and I think many of its core significations have to do with this idea of transmitting or acting as a go-between. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the position that Mercury occupies in the solar system and the fact that it's the first planet that follows after the sun, and it acts as sort of an intermediary between the sun and the rest of the planets. So in, in Valens, he talks about um, the sun representing like this divine spark or the concept of noose and which is like mind, uh, yeah, some core principle of mind. But then Mercury is that planet planet which has to convey that central concept of of mind or intelligence to the rest of the planets. And so it has this sort of go go between function. And I think just so many of Mercury's core significations, come down to that as a result of that astronomical position of being the go-between between between the king or the like central uh, figure in the solar system, which is the sun, and all of the rest of the planets from that point forward. Yes, that's such a good point. And it's interesting to think about, you know, if we were to imagine like literally a king or a monarch or something and um, a dedicated messenger to kind of capture the king's message or be entrusted with the king's message, think of all the places that that person would have access to, all the information, the really important and maybe even sacred information that that person would have access to and responsibility for, um, and how important those journeys would be to deliver those messages. And it's interesting to think of that um, as we think about Mercury being able to 
pick up on its environment, pick up on these different signs and configurations with other planets um, and do well, um, kind of wherever Mercury is in a way. Um, of course, there are places where Mercury does Mercury things the very best. And then like there are places where Mercury is not as good as at doing those things. But um, that, that may be like a slight digression. But I love that idea of Mercury sort of describing or capturing in language or systems that kind of divine intellect, which belongs to the sun. Uh, that's something I end up talking a lot with clients about actually is the sun as the sort of divine intellect and Mercury as more of like the, the thinky juice as Austin would say, or like the, the brain part that like writes it down or documents it or like communicates it to someone else. Um, or metabolizes that information, like in the mind. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I think that comes down to just that—that that its core function is to transmit or to um, convey things, to transmit or convey. And it's like if you understand that as Mercury's primary function, then you understand like seventy percent of the rest of the significations that people like Valens gives. Um, as well as just the distinction between, for example, like your sun sign maybe being one thing and the sun representing in some ways like your internal monologue and what you what you think in your own head versus like those those occasions where sometimes you try to articulate that and say that and whether you're successful or not or whether um, you attempt to say something but it comes out completely differently than. Um, how you thought about it in your head. That's kind of like the difference between the sun and Mercury in some ways. Absolutely. Mercury is kind of like the, I want to say mouthpiece, but almost like the little, uh, this isn't the perfect analogy, but like a little machine that the, the pure thought form like goes through in order to make it to the outside world or to someone else or to the page. And I think that's where we start to see a little bit of, um, Mercury's like sign and house placement as far as like a natal chart goes, um, how that really has an effect on how that process goes, like what's um, sort of pure and in the mind and then how it gets like out into the world and like leaves your mouth or leaves your mind. Yeah. And sometimes, um, you know, people have a consistency between how they think and how they speak. So let's say like the sun and Mercury sign are the same and there's like a consistency or there's they're on the same page there but in other instances you might have somebody whose sun sign is one thing but their mercury sign is different and so sometimes the way that that person communicates might come off differently than how the person is if you actually get to know them and you get to know their like inner thinking and inner thoughts absolutely i remember like very early on when I was first starting to really study astrology seriously and I was um, moderating some subreddits, <laughs> people would ask questions a lot. You know, the basic question of like, oh, I don't feel like a Gemini or, or, or I don't feel like a Virgo or, or whatever. They didn't really relate to their sun sign. And so often in those situations, I would see they would post their chart and I would see let's say they were a Gemini, but they had Mercury in Taurus or something, and maybe it was angular. So that, um, number one, Mercury ruling the sun would be in aversion to the sun, but also in a totally different sign, in a Venus-ruled sign, or maybe um, 
you know, the sign before, but there's, there is a huge distinction. And the, my first thought of course was aversion because Mercury doesn't get very far away from the sun in its orbit. So the, the chance for Mercury and the sun to be in the same sign is pretty big, but so, so is a sun Mercury aversion as well. That's a really great point. So that's a, just a basic astronomical fact that maybe we should, it's good to state right from the start is that Mercury can never get more than what, like 20, I'm blanking, 28 degrees? 28? Yeah. Yeah, I believe it's 28 degrees away from the sun, which means it's always going to be within one zodiacal sign of the sun. And there's a pretty good chance of it being in the same sign as the sun, but it could be either one sign forward or one sign backwards from the sun. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite examples of that that I always invoke, I don't have his birth time, which I'm really annoyed about. I'm pretty sure I don't have his birth time, but the rapper um, Eminem is actually, he has a, he's a sun in Libra, but he has Mercury in Scorpio. And I think oftentimes, especially you hear that Mercury in Scorpio much more clearly, but um, maybe on some of his like internal stuff, he's like a little bit, a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, and really appropriate for an artist too. To have that Libra sun, but have like Mercury and Scorpio. Yes. Um, and Venus in Virgo, actually, consequently, talking about Mercury ruled signs. All right. Uh, yeah, I like that. Um, so that's a really good point. But um, going back to the idea of Mercury transferring things, that's part of the reason why one of the primary things that's always been associated with is the broad category of communication. Because communication is when you attempt to as well as speech, because that's when you attempt to like convey something to another individual through words. You're trying to convey ideas or meanings or intentions or what have you. you there's many different things that you can convey, um, but it's the medium through which you convey it, uh, as well as the attempt to convey something. And that's Mercury and its core function is that attempt to convey something. Yeah, absolutely. And um, another kind of, I don't know why I'm having, maybe it's because Mercury is retrograde right now as we're recording this, but I'm having these memories from when I first started studying um, astrology and how exciting it was to go from like sun, moon, and rising to be to looking at my Mercury sign and being like, oh, communication style, because that's so relevant to all of our lives. Like we're always communicating uh, more or less with other people. And um it's interesting how we can think about when it comes to communication styles, there are all different kinds. There are as many as there are people and there isn't, we, I guess we could say there are some that are better than others, but that's all very relative. You know, it depends on the situation. If you're like a teacher or something versus um, a lawyer or um, a caregiver, it, it really depends on what the best communication style is for the situation or for the audience, but that makes me think of what Valen said um, and that huge range of significations and Mercury adapting to their environment. Like that really speaks to how, you know, you may have four friends and they all have these different communication styles and there's not one that's the best or the worst. They're just all very different. And I think that has a very mercurial feeling to it just by itself. Yeah. Just the different communication styles that different people have. And um, yeah, so it can it can typify the way that people communicate and the, the way people like give and receive information. And while there is definitely like a sense in which there's just like different styles and there isn't one that's like better or worse, 
one of the things that's interesting is that sometimes um, when you're looking at the full birth chart, if there are difficult placements to Mercury, it can indicate if there are like challenges or blockages in some way to the person's communication style or something that they struggle with in attempting to articulate their internal thoughts to the outside world and to, to convey that or transmit it. Um, so like a common example that I, I think of is like, uh, for example, Joe Biden has Saturn in Gemini and he had that um, speech impediment when he was growing up. He had a stutter uh, which he struggled with and had to overcome, but eventually was able to like get over it or, or find a way to work around it. But it took a lot of effort, but it was something that kind of was like an impediment or something that was like a blockage to him otherwise effectively communicating or conveying his internal thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I believe you've mentioned this example um, a couple times, or well, this is Joe Biden's chart. Um, the the voice actor who played Darth Vader, was that another oh, yeah. really James good Earl example? Jones. That's a great yes, example. Yes, James Earl Jones. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Oh, um, you could probably tell the story better than I did, but I was just going to mention that's such a good point. These these very real challenges that can occur when there are difficult Mercury configurations, um, such as like a hard aspect from Saturn or maybe like a hard aspect from Mars. Um, and this makes me think of just the idea of mitigating factors in general. Um, but before I digress into that, one thing I was thinking about as well um, is about how Mercury can convey different messages in different ways. And I think at its core, when we think of Mercury and effective communication, which is, you know, ideal and natural for Mercury, if we were to kind of isolate Mercury um, on its own, we might think of something like um, memorization or like an Excel spreadsheet or like being able to keep track of all different kinds of currencies or counting money or whatever. Um, and that's a very like dignified Mercury thing in general. But I think what's really interesting is Mercury's versatility and ability to, to adapt to its environment can also give us things like um, poets and artists when Mercury is in Pisces. So there's this question of, um, you know, how easy or how much ease or difficulty is there in translating what's in the mind or in the heart um, into speech and communicating it? And, but how are we doing that? You know, like I have Mercury and Virgo, like I love writing things down. Like I love speaking and hopefully doing so clearly. Uh, no promises on, on this uh, Mercury retrograde podcast, but um but there, there are also very poetic ways of communicating things. So it's interesting to me to think about, you know, what is, if we were able to completely isolate Mercury, what would it, what kind of communication would Mercury be, would Mercury really excel at? And then what does it look like when Mercury communicates um, more creatively or differently in other signs of the Zodiac or with other configurations? Um, I think with like a hard aspect from Saturn, though, even if it's, uh, you know, Mercury and Gemini, if you have Saturn there, too, that really does represent sort of like an additional obstacle. But uh, worth mentioning that Mercury can communicate in many different ways as far as creatively and whatnot. Yeah, um, all great points. It's like bringing up a ton of examples um, that I'm thinking of. But the the first one you mentioned was uh, James Earl Jones, who's one of my favorite 
examples because yeah, you're right. Like sometimes, especially Saturn aspects, because Saturn can tend to block or slow things down or provide an obstacle to things in your chart. And if Saturn is making a hard aspect to Mercury, then it can indicate, just broadly speaking, some sort of obstacle or challenge to communication. And you know that that idea of obstacle or challenge to communication is a pretty broad archetype, and there's many different ways of specifics that that can work out. Um, but so one example of that, uh, for example, is um, like you said, James Earl Jones, who has Capricorn rising, and he has a stellium of planets uh, in the sign of Capricorn, including Mercury, uh, the Moon, Saturn, and the Sun. Uh, all in Capricorn in the first whole sign house. And Mercury was actually stationing direct uh, pretty much the day he was born, which is really interesting because stationary planets, planets that station retrograde or direct within seven days of your birth, um, are like planets that have an exclamation mark after them in your chart, and they really can tend to stand out. So he's interesting because he actually also, because of that, um, that sort of conjunction or, or co-presence between Mercury and Saturn in a night chart did have um, a speech impediment early on. So here's the Wikipedia page, and it talks about from the age of five being raised by his maternal grandparents, and then he made a transition to living with his grandparents. And it says, uh, Jones found the transition to living with his grandparents in Michigan traumatic and developed a stutter so severe that he refused to speak. And it says, quote, I was a stutterer. I couldn't talk. So my first year of school was my first mute year. And then those mute years continued until I got to high school. So we're talking about like major, you know, blockages to speech and to conveying things. But then you think about that, how that was eventually something he was able to overcome um, because it actually says that he. Um, it says he credits his English teacher, Donald Crouch, who discovered he had a gift for writing poetry uh, with helping him end his silence. And Crouch urged him to challenge his reluctance to speak through reading poetry aloud in the class. And then, of course, you know, he becomes, ironically, in quite a turnaround, like one of the most iconic voices of the 20th century when he ends up voicing. Um, Darth Vader. And there was like another actor who played Darth Vader, but then in post-production, they went back and James Earl Jones like overdubbed all of the lines with his just like amazing, deep, rich, sort of authoritative voice. And certainly that was, I think it's like most prominent role, but then he also played other prominent roles. Wasn't he also like Mufasa in The Lion King? I think so. I'm like, I'm like testing your Disney knowledge right now and putting you on the spot. I, that's like my least known Disney movie, but that sounds very okay. familiar. So, I too, I'm more an Aladdin guy myself, but big same. Yeah, big same, hard same. Okay, but you know, Lion King is still up there. So, um, anyways, his voice becomes like this iconic late 20th century voice in film and acting and and, and television. I think to some extent. So. It's not that there sometimes these these obstacles don't have to be permanent, but it can represent a challenge to communication that comes up in the person's life um, that it can be something that they struggle with if Mercury has some challenging placements to it. but sometimes sometimes it's something that they can overcome. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So another one that that reminded me of, though, when you were talking about um, positive placements and poets and poetry, 
is one of my other favorite examples, which is uh, Maya Angelou, a famous American poet who has Mercury um, in Pisces, which is the sign of its antithesis and the sign of its fall or depression, and it's actually squaring Saturn. Um, and she also had some challenging issues with speech early in her life, but then Mercury is also closely conjunct Venus in the sign of its exaltation. So Mercury is at like 20 Pisces, and Venus is at 21 Pisces, and Mercury is applying to a conjunction with Venus. So, um, and she actually eventually grew up to be a famous uh, American poet and one of like the leading American poets uh, in the late 20th and early 21st century. Such a great example. Yeah. So sometimes it's like challenging aspects can indicate challenges or difficulties in speech, but positive aspects to Mercury can indicate somebody who excels at speech, or in her case, has a particular eloquence or flair or gift at conveying things in a, in a beautiful or interesting way in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how's how's Mercury? What's Mercury like in your chart? What's your what's your situation? Um, let's see. I also was born on a Mercury station, uh, but it was the retrograde station. Um, Mercury is exactly conjunct Venus in Virgo in my chart, and co-present with Mars in Virgo, and it's also conjunct the lot of fortune. So there's a lot going on in Virgo in my chart. Are you okay sharing it for the video viewers? Uh, sure. Okay. Here's your chart. So Leah rising, Mercury's at five Virgo, uh, stationing retrograde, conjunct Venus at six Virgo, and Mars at 14 Virgo. And you have a, are you a, do you experience yourself as a day chart or a night chart? Your sun's at 11 Leo and your, or your, sorry, your ascendant's at 11 Leo and your sun is at 15 Leo? Yeah, I think functionally it's a night chart. Um, just you according so? to like, yeah, like zodiacal releasing consultations I've gotten and just, my personal experience. Um, it functions like a night chart. But I mean, also, I was born like 15 clock minutes before sunrise. It was bright yeah. outside. And it's I it's really have, close to rising. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where it like almost doesn't matter. There's there's so much solar and so much lunar and then so much mercurial. So, you know. Right. Um, so Mercury and that means though, and that could lead to another topic. So Mercury is stationing retrograde in your chart because it's like 20 something degrees away from the sun. It's as far as away almost as it can get from the sun before it turns around and starts heading back towards it. Um, and then eventually makes the retrograde conjunction with the sun halfway through the retrograde cycle, which is actually the point of the, of the retrograde cycle that we're at today, consequently, yeah. as we're recording this episode, which is kind of nice. Let me actually show the chart for that because I meant to show it earlier. There we go. We, we caught Virgo rising for starting this election and put Mercury on the midheaven there, conjunct the sun at 20 degrees of Gemini. Um, anyway, eventually your Mercury will station direct by secondary progression. And I always think that's an interesting thing to pay attention to as an important turning point in a person's life when Mercury by secondary progression either stations direct or retrograde. And sometimes it change in terms of the person's communication style. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to remember when exactly this happened for me. Um, but while that runs as a background process in my brain, it is worth noting that it's really interesting that um, out of all the planets, 
since Mercury is the fastest, um, overall people are more likely to be able to catch a progressed station of some kind with Mercury than with Venus, Mars, or any of the other planets, uh, depending on what part of their cycle they were born in. If you were born pretty near to a station of another planet, um, you you know you will experience that station as far as secondary progressions go, but. Um, I'm trying to like do the math quickly in my head, Here, <laughs> but I, like, I just, it pull, seems I just like... pulled it up. Okay, great. <laughs> I, I got you. So oh, let's yes. see. So I'll animate it in the solar fire. And so right now your Mercury, secondary progress Mercury is at 26 Leo, but it says down here in the bottom right that it last stationed 6.7 days ago. So in secondary progressed language, that's 6.7 years ago if we back it up. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There we go. So it's stationed um, direct at 23-ish degrees of Leo uh, back around 2014, 2015. How was how were things going in 2014, 2015 for you? Um, well, interestingly enough, with Mercury in my second house, um, I had decided at that point to quit my day job as a manager at a retail place and mm. focus on studying astrology seriously. So it was it was really about astrology for me, honestly. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I've seen other people, like I think Alan White is like an example I used of when he he had been in astrology for a while, but when he discovered Project Hindsight, and he discovered traditional astrology, which was like this big moment, a turning point in his life. I think his secondary progress Mercury was stationing direct or something as well. Nice, yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a pretty good example of some sometimes just turning points. So people should check out when their secondary progressed Mercury stations retrograde or direct, because that can often be a pretty notable turning point in a person's life. All right, so um, backing up, we talked about James Earl Jones, Maya Angelou, and the potential for either um, challenges in communication or having some great um, ability in language. There's there's one other poet that I, I sometimes use. I think it's T.S. Eliot who has like a Venus Mercury conjunction in Libra on the ascendant, and who again, similar to Maya Angelou, is like a you know, had a great ability to communicate in an artistic manner. Yeah, that's great. Um, let me see if I can actually find that chart really quickly. Do you know of any other like poets or anybody like that that has interesting Mercury placements? Mm, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Here it is. So T.S. Eliot, so it's 25 Libra rising. And Venus is at 24 Libra, and Mercury is at 26 Libra. So there's a very, very tight Mercury-Venus conjunction. So good for art artistry in terms of one's communication and writing style. Um, other combinations, though, we talked about Mercury-Saturn. What are Mercury-Mars combinations like? Because that's another like famous or like infamous one in like traditional astrology, especially. Yeah. Um, well, thinking about um, Mercury-Venus combinations, we think about like words as a medium for art or creativity. Right. And every time I think of like Mars-Mercury combinations, I think about um, words as weapons <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or right. like fighting with the pen rather than the sword. Um, yes. That just kind of, I always think about aggressive 
communication styles, very assertive, maybe quick to speak, um, maybe sometimes without thinking first, depending yeah. on the, uh, the, the sign placement. But those are my immediate thoughts. But I, but I feel like you're about to mention how this is like a theft thing in ancient texts. Were you going to go there? Well, I mean, we could go there, but I like where you're going more of okay. impuls- impulsivity or like fighting yeah. words. That that then actually brings up like the Eminem example back again, because yeah. Mercury and Scorpio would be a Mars ruled sign. And he's like famously in his rap is very like aggressive and, and sort of like assertive or did like rap battles and things like that. Like rap battles is like a great Mercury Mars archetype like combination. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So, um, because Mars is also associated with like screams and anger and wars just traditionally on its own or like fighting and battles and things like that. Um, what else? Sometimes like, I don't know how this works out, but like curse words or cursing can sometimes be like a Mercury Mars type thing occasionally. I can, uh, I can attest to that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm being good on this podcast and otherwise it's yeah, that's a thing yeah. for me, at least, in my experience. As soon as the recording is off, it's just like like a drunken sailor uh, with you. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, but quickly, that made me also think about, um, you know, the association of Mars with, like, warring and wars and things. And those, the valence keywords of um, strategic, I'm trying to think of the exact words. I can't think of them exactly. But, um, like, war planning or, like, war strategy with Mercury and how there can be, you know, I, I think it's very natural and automatic to think of sort of these hot and dry Aries significations when we think of Mars. But there's also like the scorpionic side that is a little bit cooled off, a little bit tempered, that tends towards strategy rather than like um, necessarily being on the vanguard. And so when you get a Mars that leans that way with Mercury, you can get individuals who are very incisive, very perceptive. Uh, very focused. Um, there's a relentlessness that can come from Mars, and when joined with Mercury, that can that can turn into like relentless mental focus or um, being being very driven intellectually. Um, one of my favorite rising signs. It's weird to have like a favorite rising sign, um, but just as you're, far as like you're studying, like, you're like charts rank, rank, ranking them in the background. <laughs> Yeah, only in the background. Um, okay. But Virgo rising is such an interesting rising sign because you have Mercury ruling the ascendant and then you have Mars ruling the third house, which has connections to um, communication for one, but also just like mental patterning and things like that. And these tend to be quite incisive individuals, very perceptive, um, kind of like detective energy going on. So that's another interesting kind of different manifestation of mercury mars sometimes is that drive yeah you're getting us into some territory here with like um mercury one of the tendencies for mercury is like a a methodicalness and i think that's tied into one of the other very broad overarching like umbrella archetypes for mercury which is that in addition to being like the closest planet to the sun it's also the smallest of the seven traditional planets um so and and its domiciles of Virgo and Gemini are opposite to Jupiter, which is like the largest planet in the solar system. So one of the major contrasts for Mercury that comes up is that Mercury focuses on very small things, whereas Jupiter focuses on very big things. And part of understanding Mercury is understanding that contrast with Jupiter. 
but um, focusing on very small things. Sometimes the small things are the details, and, and an ability to focus on the details is definitely a great Mercury trait, especially for Virgo, which is more of a grounded Mercury sign. So it's like the small things that are tangible, um, which are, are, are de- definitely the details. Absolutely. Um, we should talk about Mercury's domiciles because this is such an interesting way to kind of dig into Mercury's significations. But you're absolutely mm. right with um, Mercury's Earth sign. There is this groundedness or a tangible quality. Um, I often find Virgo placements with a sort of attitude of like, okay, but but show me the evidence. Like show me something real. Like where's the data? Um, rather than sort of a Gemini kind of like a like an air focus of like well let's just explore it what if it's this what if it's this you know what if it's both what if it's neither let's think of something new where there is kind of that more methodical quality with mercury's earth sign that is focused on the details and improvement and sort of tweaking and updating versus exploration and a lot of that i tie to temperament when i think about it um, Virgo being a cold and dry sign. Um, so earth, the, the element of earth is made up of the two qualities, coldness and dryness, um, dryness being very separative. And the main difference that I always think about with Gemini is that Gemini is an air sign, which is made up of the qualities of heat and moisture and moisture is connective. And I always think of like connecting the dots with Gemini or connecting with people, whether socially or conversationally. So there's this idea of like bouncing ideas around with other people with Gemini um, versus like getting down to the details. And like, I imagine looking at every single component of something like um, I, I use this example sometimes. It's like a really good way to figure out how something works is to like take it all apart and like put it all back together again. I think of like those kids who would just like take apart their alarm clock and like look at all the little parts and see if they could like put it back together with all the little screws. It's a very like Virgo cold and dry approach. And it really speaks to the methodical side of Mercury, that systematic thinking and wanting to understand the small parts uh, rather than the large parts, which is, um, or the, the overarching themes, which is more of a Jupiter thing. Yeah. I love that. That's actually thinking of, um, I'm blanking out on his name as I commonly do, but one of the founders of Apple computer, not Steve jobs, but Steve Jobs's friend who is yeah. think fast, uh, what's his name? Job, Steve. I literally have Steve? no idea. <laughs> okay. I is it like Mike it. something? No, it's the founder of Apple, who is not Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Wozniak, uh, who let me pull up his chart really quick, because he is exactly what you're talking about in that he had, or has, he's actually still around, but he has a Virgo rising chart with a Mercury conjunct Saturn in Virgo, and he's like this tech genius. And even though when he got together with his friend who he met in high school, Steve Jobs, they founded Apple Computer together. Um, you know, Steve Jobs was like the big idea, like marketing guy, but Steve Wozniak was actually the technical guy who was really good at like putting together little gadgets and um, had the technical knowledge and like aptitude and, um, you know, programmed some of the early Apple computers. 
Um, so that's a really great example of that, just in terms of sometimes what you'll see is like a technical um, ability, a technological ability with Mercury and, and Virgo placements. Right. I love I love that chart, first of all, um, especially Mercury with Saturn, just like right there in the first house. Like, right. let's take this idea and give it a container and make it real. Like, that's already sort of a Virgo thing is like, let's make this a real thing, embody it somehow, um, rather than it just being a cool idea. But with Saturn too, there's this idea of like, let's build a sustainable structure for it. Let's make the machine that will actually like run this idea. That's so cool. Yeah. And what's funny is um, Steve Jobs, you know, who is the co-founder of Apple, Apple Computers, also had Virgo rising, but his Mercury was in um, Aquarius, the sixth house. Um, it was actually stationary as well. It was stationing. So again, like people with stationary Mercury, as you know, are, you know, pretty important or can have um really interesting Mercury placements like that, but it was in Aquarius and sort of squaring Saturn. Um, and he was a little bit more complicated because he could also be very severe in his speech and especially in the way that he like talked to and treated employees, which is kind of like a sixth house thing. But there was a lot kind of going on there with this chart, especially with his Jupiter Uranus conjunction in the 11th house, exalted in Cancer, um, square Neptune, and this sort of like visionary or like far reaching far thinking um idea you know with that um that tagline from the 90s think different was one of his like things that he was really big on yeah that's fantastic um my brain is going nuts over their sinistry too like we definitely don't have to like go into that digression but like wow i know well yeah and especially their 11th house stuff because it's like that's, oh, yeah. i always use them i always use them for that as an example because they were two friends who both had very positive 11th house placements, and it was as a result of their friendship. So it's like Steve Jobs has that Jupiter in the, in the 11th house exalted conjunct Uranus, um, whereas Wozniak has this nice Moon-Venus conjunction in Cancer in the 11th house. And really as a result of their friendship, like they became millionaires or billionaires uh, eventually down the line. And even though they didn't necessarily stay working together, because Wozniak eventually left Apple at, at one point, um, still sometimes there can be signatures like that in a chart that indicates like friendship is a really important component that will change this person's entire life at some point. And sometimes it's just like that one friend that that does that for you. Absolutely. That is too cool. Yeah. All right. So we're talking about the Mercury and the Virgo thing small things, details, um, sweating the details. Sometimes the downside of that is that the Mercury function can sometimes um, malfunction and it can get stuck on the details and like obsessing about the details or not being able to see the bigger picture or to like zoom out, but to stay stuck on the details. And sometimes that can be a tricky thing with Mercury at the same time. Absolutely. Um I believe Austin used this example at some point, Austin Kopic, the idea that Jupiter is like um, is like a telescope and Mercury is like a magnifying glass or a microscope, look, zooming in on the very small details versus looking up and out um, like into the sky and into space. And I, I can confirm <laughs> as a Virgo person that, yeah, like getting super zoomed in on details and being a little bit bogged down by them can be a mercurial thing. Um, there, there is such a thing too, as 
kind of just taking it too far as far as trying to break something down into the components. Like there's a point where it is valuable to be able to kind of take something at face value. And sometimes um, a sort of unbalanced mercury or like a super dignified mercury or otherwise very emphasized mercury can get like a little stuck in that. And um, this is just the day I reference Austin the whole time, but I, I looked over here to my copy of 36 Faces and remembered um, some of my favorite significations from the Virgo decans. I'm trying to remember which one's exactly one or two. Either way, um, a gift for fault finding is a line that's stuck in my mind. Um, because again, that cold and dryness is just like, look at every tiny little detail, break it down and then break it down again. And that's a very useful function. You know, it's good to be able to find the the weak links in an idea or in a project uh, because that can guide you toward a solution. But sometimes you're just nitpicking. <laughs> like sometimes it just gets to the point where it's like very hard to find any sort of satisfaction. So that's definitely kind of a negative experience of a Mercury skill. Yeah, it's like a, a double-edged sword in some sense in terms of it can either be a great strength or it could also be a, a great weakness. Um, sometimes like like little things, that idea of little things can extend to like ideas of like cleanliness as well, which can sometimes be like a, a good thing, but also can sometimes like malfunction or short circuit and become like a fear of small things, which can extend to things like microbes or like germs. Yeah, absolutely. It's like kind of the idea that it's hard to unsee or unknow something. And um, like I know folks with prominent Virgo placements or Virgo rising who, you know, once they learned what germs were when they were like kids in school, it's like they they can't unknow it. And, you know, they're the people who are, um, they, they have that kind of hyper awareness of that, not in like a super extreme way, but Mercury is like, oh no, I'm retaining that information forever. Like that's yours now forever. <laughs> and um, this line of thinking makes me think of perfectionism as well. Just this idea of like, no, no, if I just tweak it a little more, it'll be better. Like maybe I could actually attain perfection. That's kind of a mercurial Virgo leaning trait as well. Definitely. Like the idea of putting things, and especially if it's combined with Saturn, um, yeah, because sometimes Saturn can be fear or or seeing the faults in things, but Mercury also has that ability to see the fine details and they therefore see what's out of place. And if you put like a hundred things in front of it and like one of them is out of out of place, they can see that one and zoom in on that one thing that's out of place. And sometimes that will like really bother them. Um, and that can be like a positive thing or it can be a thing that they obsess over and get stuck on and can't move past in some sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, good. I like this. So um, we're focusing a lot on the Virgo part of it. I do want to bring in some Gemini stuff, and I'm trying to think of some good Gemini examples, but I'm drawing a blank right now. One of the only ones, because Gemini is much more, it's like an air sign, it's much more about communication and much more of conveying things. And um, one of the only examples I'm like finding that I'm pulling up really quickly right now is like Edward Snowden, for example, who's a famous um, Gemini and or famous Gemini and Gemini rising. So his ascendant um, supposedly is at 12 degrees of Gemini. 
Mercury conjunct the degree of the ascendant at 10, 10 Gemini with Mars at 24 and the Sun at 29 Gemini. So he's actually got a Gemini stellium. And that's kind of an interesting one, having like Mars thrown in there because he, of course, was a, a whistleblower. So he like announced or he broke, I guess, like a pact or whatever with being a contractor for like the US government and like announced that they were like spying on people around the world through technology and communication. And that was kind of his thing. So it's interesting because it ties back to um, one of Valens' significations he gives is the office of the herald. And the herald is like, Kind of like the town crier in like ancient Greco-Roman society, where the guy just like you know announces the news of the day or announces the official proclamations or something. But sometimes that can be the role of Mercury is just like to announce things or to dis- declare or disclose things. Sometimes to uncover and um, yeah, put put light on things in some sense. Totally. Um- yeah, I love that the herald or um, one who proclaims. That's that's really really great for Gemini being an air sign, because um, the heat of Gemini being um, hot and moist is that kind of outward facing or outward moving energy versus Virgo, which is kind of inward facing or inward moving or condensing. Um, we could compare the herald with like the scribe or something like just copying manuscripts over and over all day, like in a dark room versus like the town herald literally walking around proclaiming things to the community constantly. Um, but yeah, that really speaks to that Gemini quality. And, you know, even in a natal context, we can see that a little bit of the um, outward moving versus inward moving with Gemini, um, a desire to connect, a desire to have conversation. Um, and both Virgo and Gemini are mutable signs, but we really feel the mutability with, Mercury's air sign with the idea of exploration or variety or options, multiplicity, trying different things, transforming one thing into another thing, um, having kind of a comfortability with being in a state of transition or change um, is kind of mercurial on its own, but especially so in Mercury's air sign, I feel. Yeah, definitely. And that can be really good because there's maybe even more than any other sign, like a good sense of adaptability for Mercury in Gemini and for Gemini placements in general, the ability to sort of conform to things or go with the flow in some sense, um, which can be very, very good uh, in the sense of adaptability and things like that. But also sometimes the flip side of that coin can be um, like a feeling of like talking a lot or using a lot of words, but it not having a lot of depth behind it. But instead, you know, sometimes the worst case scenario can be just like talking for the sake of talking. Yeah, that that can be a thing as well. And it makes me think about just the concept of air as an element, like thinking about literal air um, or wind. Air touches everything. It's constantly in motion, even if we can't see it. Um, and especially when we think about wind, like thinking about like a gust sweeping across a landscape, the wind doesn't like stop and go down and like permeate the earth and like sink lower and lower. Like that's what water would do. Um, air goes broad rather than deep. And so does Gemini in a way. And there's a real strength to that because there's an ability to kind of gather and evaluate your options rather than getting stuck in one place. 
Um, and of course, the other side of that is um, maybe perhaps a tendency to be a little noncommittal or um, a less kind word would be flaky <laughs> um, or just like the strength there isn't necessarily for committing to one thing. It's it's in the exploration and in the gathering and evaluating and and playing with options and the curiosity it takes to do that. And curiosity is another very Gemini thing and a mercurial thing as well, a desire to know how something works or maybe to pursue what you don't know yet. That is a great segue into my example that I was just searching for like my Mercury and Gemini examples. And one that I found that's one of my favorites is uh, who started out as a, as a writer, became famous initially as a writer, which is um, Anthony Bourdain, who was oh, yes. born with Leo Rising, but he has this great like Mercury in Gemini with Venus or in the same sign as Venus in the 11th pole sign house. And um, he, he of course was like a, a chef who, you know, cooked for like 10 or 20 years or something. But then in the late nineties, he wrote this book, I think Kitchen Confidential that just very quickly, like became wildly successful very quickly. And then he ended up starting a travel show and, um, that ended up becoming in, in the last like two decades of his life, like this major thing where he would just travel around the world trying different cultures and like just exploring different things. And and in that show, I think one of the reasons among many that it sort of touched people was he always had this very poetic way with words and this ability to talk about um, his experiences and talk about different cultures. And people that he was like experiencing when he would travel to different countries for this like um, food show, um, in this very eloquent way. Oh, that's fantastic! Talk about like getting a taste of of so many different things and like following your curiosity and like desire and trying new things. That's beautiful. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. All of that. All the keywords that you were using there were pretty perfect. Um, so I'm trying to think whether there's other Gemini examples or one of the things I forgot was to like keep going through the significations. Um, I know there's still a few in Valens that we didn't dwell on, but there's also like five other authors that we could go through to get some of the more of the ancient and the modern significations if it's if it's time for that. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, one of the ones that I think about too is Mercury and youth. And I know like brothers or like, what was it? Younger brothers was mentioned with Valens, but I think that's, those, those are mentioned elsewhere as well. Right. Yeah. Um, is the Lord of brothers and of younger children. Younger children. Yeah. And then there's like, there's so much other stuff. It's so dense. All, all the things pertaining to the market and the craft of banking in traditional astrology, there's this like mercantile context of Mercury that sometimes gets overlooked mm -hmm. in, in modern astrology. Um, I also love, um, he, asso he associates like a lot of divination and astrology. He, he basically says it um, indirectly, but he basically associates astrology with Mercury, and Mercury was traditionally associated with astrology. And it's partially because astrologers are seen as being like translators who are translating the the speech of the stars for the client and they act as sort of like a go-between between the client and the stars or between the client and their fate or what have you absolutely this this touches on a couple really core mercury things so one being a go-between um which we talked about a lot early on number two 
this idea of translation and the connection to language and astrology as a as sort of a language um, or something that requires translation in order to communicate, another very mercurial thing. Um, but divination is really interesting too. And it makes me think of um, the Mercury as psychopomp, this, this idea of not only traveling to be the king's messenger or what have you, but traveling between worlds and, and having the ability and capacity to do that in ways that um, perhaps not every planet does. And, you know, being able to go, to go there and like capture somehow understand or receive this divine information and then like deliver it to somewhere else or like bring it up out of the depths. Um, there, yeah, there are so many good Mercury um, significations just in that few little set of keywords. Right, because Mercury in like mythology was one of the few gods as the messenger of the gods who wore like the winged sandals, mm-hmm. um, who could actually like go to the underworld and like come back in order to convey messages. Absolutely. Yeah. So you get you get some of that coming up in the significations of things, and yeah, translators. Translators is a really good Mercury signification, and that's partially. That's what astrologers are doing. That's partially what's happening is they're translating from the language of the stars into like, at least ideally, in best case scenario, some language that their clients can understand, but also pretty much any other type of translator because of that go-between function of you can have somebody that hears one language and then in their head translates that and then outputs it into another language. So you get both that hearing and um understanding and then conveying function all sort of in one. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like the perfect example, translator in general. Um, and one thing I was going to mention, I don't think I mentioned it, but, but also this idea of Mercury's association with astrology and astrology being this really intense system. Like there are a mm-hmm. lot of moving parts in astrology. And um, I, I mean, I don't know about anyone else, but like it it was kind of a big learning curve, at least for me. Like it took a lot of effort. It took like a lot of that mercurial focus because it is so systematic. It can be so methodical. And so that's another way that astrology is so mercurial. And then it even touches on like the divination as well and translation and communication. Um, I'm like, is astrology the most mercurial thing that exists? <laughs> Probably yeah, not. maybe. But I'm, yeah, um, it, it could be close. I'm, it's got to be up it's, there. it's up there. It's like top 10. Um, yeah. and, and numbers numbers are a thing that's associated with, with yeah. Mercury as well as counting. Um, that also is making me think of some of the physiological connections like hearing, because um, translating involves not just um, you know, communicating in the outward uh, you know, expression of speech, but also the receiving of speech and like how you hear things and whether you hear things well, or whether again there can sometimes be an impediment. So sometimes, like um, if there's a challenging Mercury placement, sometimes an impediment to hearing can be like a very literal manifestation of that. Um, but other physiological connections, for example, that Valens mentions are the hands, and they're um, people that work with the hands and do things that are methodical. That's one of the reasons why Valens lists a bunch of significations like braiding and weaving as sort of like an ancient um, literal manifestation of somebody that does something very methodical that's involved in the hands. 
Absolutely. And this like this idea of skill with the hands, like great dexterity or even like um, agility, I guess, is more geared towards like the, the performer significations. But I mm. love that braiding and weaving, taking all of these multiple threads, multiple parts and skillfully combining them into something more complete or into something new or into a pattern. Super mercurial. Yeah. Um, all right. I just keep going back to, cause there's so many other just like cool significations and valens that tie us back to things like those who utilize paradoxes and craftiness and calculations or false reasonings. So there's like the idea of like being crafty or being into paradoxes or thinking of like a Rubik's cube and that being like a mercurial thing, like trying to unlock a puzzle or something like that through methodicalness. But then also the, the flip side of that, of somebody who is crafty or like wily or something or tricks you. And that's a funny part of like the Mercury mythology or the Hermes mythology and just myth is like the craftiness or, or um, the tendency to play like jokes or like tricks on people in some way. Uh, yes, the trickster part of Mercury. Um, yeah, that's a huge thing. And I love that um, this whole connection with paradoxes it makes me think of riddles too. Um, humor and jokes, but like riddles particularly because there's this cleverness or craftiness um, that goes along with riddles. I, I got to admit, I'm thinking about the riddles in the dark chapter from The Hobbit. Obviously, okay. I'm thinking about Tolkien right now. Um for for those who do not know, I'm a massive Tolkien nerd, but um, yeah, super mercurial. Yeah, I am. Like whenever like the Joker is mentioned, I, I thought I think of like Jim Carrey's version of that in like the 1990s, like Batman. Um, but it also makes me think of things like stand up comics, like a, a stand up comics or like a comedian is a very mercurial thing because um. It's not just communication, like standing on a stage with a microphone and like talking, but it's also trying to be funny and trying to be clever with words or speech and eliciting like a laugh from the audience. So a comedian is a very like Mercury and, and perhaps especially like a Gemini type thing. Oh, for sure. And the idea of like feeding off an audience and kind of being able to riff or being able to just kind of roll with it is super Gemini um, energy, super Gemini behavior. Yeah, I've, I've actually been watching a lot of like roast battles recently of like comedians in like LA and, and New York have developed a f funny um, thing for, I think like Jeff Ross first invented it, but it's just like getting up on a stage with two comedians and they have a setup and they like insult each other uh, for jokes, like from the audience. And it's a very like Mercury Mars combination type thing. Cause it's like, who can, sometimes it's about who can say like the meanest thing a little bit that like hits a little bit too close to home. But the goal isn't necessarily meanness. The goal is like, who says the funniest thing that happens to be something that's also, you know, insulting to the other person. And it's a very <laughs> funny manifestation of like a Mercury Mars type of combination archetypally. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's perfect. And just like a high energy situation too. I love it. Yeah. And, and have to, having to think fast, sometimes like having a good mm -hmm. comeback and having to think on your feet is a good Mercury thing in terms of um, that adaptability and also quick thinkingness. Certainly like the like mental agility. Right. Exactly. All right. So 
think that's good for the significations of Valens. Why don't we jump forward several centuries to like the ninth century to Abu Mashar and the abbreviation to the introduction of astrology, which thankfully, like its title has a much more abbreviated like paragraph of significations of Mercury. Although a lot of them are very similar to Valens because there's a lot of continuity between the Hellenistic and the early medieval Arabic tradition. So Abu Mashar says, Mercury inclines its nature to the natures of the planets and the signs in which it mixes. It indicates youth, younger brothers, love for servants and servant girls. It indicates divinity, revelation to prophets, trustworthiness, intellect, speaking, rumors, the various sciences, calculation, surveying, geometry, astrology, omens by birds, sorcery, rhetoric, poetry, the art of writing, poetic anthologies, little joy, corruptions to wealth, commerce, receiving and giving, cunning, swindling, slyness, assistance, patience, friendliness with one who is suitable. Yeah, so we see a lot of um, similarities, a lot of overlap, but a little clarity and actually is like actually mentioning some things that we ended up coming up with sort of on our own that weren't mentioned with Valens. But I like that little one of like cunning, swindling, and slyness or the notion of slyness. Yeah, that's good. I mean, thinking about Mercury as a planet that can kind of go places other planets might not, or like this sort of um, psychopomp archetype that also gives the ability to kind of stay out of the sight of others or like do things covertly as well. Like if one can make these huge heroic monumental journeys, like that's a good traveler and like a, a, a person or a figure who's able to like do that traveling is probably also able to travel unseen. And um, that's like another interesting way to think about the cunning slyness um, associations with Mercury. Oh, that's a good point. Cause Mercury actually, again, more than any of the other planets will also, because of its frequent retrogrades, will frequently um, go under the beams of the sun when it gets within 15 degrees or so of the sun. So it will frequently be concealed. And that's probably where some of that like hiddenness or slyness or other things um, comes into play as well. Absolutely. I was just thinking the same thing. Um, I have a diagram somewhere. I don't think I can pull it up in time, but I'll find it later for Mercury and its cycles for being under the beams. Um, is there any other things in here in Abu Mashar? I mean, aside from him emphasizing sort of the same thing that Valens did, which is he just says Mercury inclines its nature to the natures of the planets and the signs in which it mixes. And that was a common thing where Mercury, um, usually when the traditional astrologers will enumerate like the benefic planets and the malefic planets, they'll say, Venus and Jupiter are the two benefics, and Mars and Saturn are the two malefics. And when they come to Mercury, they just say Mercury will take on the qualities of whatever planets it's most closely associated with in the chart. And if that's benefics, it will tend to be more benefic. And if it's malefics, it will tend to be more malefic. So that shows up in many different areas where Mercury will tend to take on the qualities of the planets that's closely associated with in the chart, including um, in sect, for example, that's, that Mercury is said to be neutral in sect but that it joins the daytime planets when it's a morning star and it joins the nighttime planets when it's an evening star. Yes. Um, I'm so glad you brought this up because I think about this a lot as far as Mercury being neutral when it comes to sect and even when it comes to being malefic or benefic and just kind of 
taking on the qualities of the the planet to which it's most closely configured. Um, even with temperament, I believe it's that way. I'm I'm not remembering exactly like what the technical procedures are for determining Mercury's temperament. I think there are like multiple factors. Um, but I rem I now I'm not sure where I'm remembering this from, but um like on its own, Mercury does have that kind of cold and dry temperament, but being so adaptable, you know, if you have Mercury with Mars in Aries or with Jupiter in Pisces, you're going to get a very different expression and experience of Mercury due to its ability to kind of absorb and take on the uh, beneficence or maleficence or, or whatever of the planet it's most closely configured to. It's super fascinating. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing from a technical standpoint with astrology, but then I guess also goes back to part of the core archetype as well of Mercury having this sense of like neutrality, of being neutral and that it can go either way, that it, it almost like doesn't have an inherent like moral compass, but it has this um it can sort of be talked in either direction in some sense. Yeah, and especially kind of keeping in mind your episode um, on the moon and your episode on the sun, those are so, those two celestial bodies are so um, archetypally clear when it comes to sect, when it comes to temperament. Um, they're so iconic, you know. And then even when it comes to like malefic and benefic planets, you know, we have the malefics, Mars and Saturn tending toward extremes in in whatever they're doing and then the benefics tending toward moderation and then you have mercury that's like completely neutral on all of it it's so unique and um i often think about how funny it is that like this ultra neutral ultra adaptable planet was like you know for my domiciles and exaltations i'm just going to like double down on on one of each and just break the entire pattern <laughs> that the like the rest of the planets follow and have my domicile and exaltation in Virgo and my uh, detriment and fall in Pisces. Why not? Yeah, um, I like kind that. of this wild card almost. Yeah, wild card is a really good, um, good word, good keyword for Mercury. Like it's wild card. It's there's a little bit of unpredictability in it, and in some ways, traditionally, like Mercury was almost the one that played the function that modern astrologers tend to give more to Uranus at this point of like. Mm -hmm. unexpectedness or disruptions or things like that. Absolutely. And speaking of um, Uranus, we also get kind of more modern associations of Uranus with technology, which I certainly don't like fully disagree with or anything. But um, mm -hmm. if there is a technological planet, it's Mercury, you know, systems, components, bits and pieces working together. Um, yeah, that that's kind of an aside, but um, yeah, for sure. No, that's perfect. So, so Mercury tended to be more of the technology planet in traditional mm -hmm. astrology, and that's still very much relevant, I think. And and we saw some of that, for example, with Steve Wozniak and that like technological ability and ability to work with computers, or even like Edward Snowden, for example. Um, but that's that's part of the the reason for that is that sometimes uh, Mercury, especially when it's well placed in its best function, can excel at technology. Yeah, certainly. I'm trying to find a diagram for sect, but I'm having a hard time, so I'm going to skip that. Um, why don't we go back to our significations? Maybe that's good for Abu Mashar. He was pretty straightforward and pretty 
similar to Valens in terms of traditional significations. And I'm not sure if there's anything else there that we need to mention. So um, we're going to jump forward to the 17th century to the very end of like traditional astrology, quote unquote, to William Lilly and his book Christian Astrology, which was published in 1647. So he breaks it into like different sections of what is the nature of Mercury, what kind of people does it signify, and what does it signify when it's well placed in a chart versus when it's um, poorly placed. Uh, do you feel like reading some of this? I feel like I'm like taking all the reading stuff, or can you see this clearly? Uh, yeah, I can read some. Um, okay, so in the section called Nature, um, William Lilly says of Mercury, masculine or feminine, depending on its placement. If in conjunction with a masculine planet, Mercury becomes masculine. If with a feminine, then feminine. By its own nature, Mercury is cold and dry and therefore melancholic. Mercury is adaptable. Its influence is beneficial when associated with good planets, malefic when associated with bad planets. Mercury rules the animal spirit and is the author of subtlety, tricks, devices, and perjury. Uh, do you want me to go on to people signified? Um, here, let's alternate. I'll do this one, then you do the next one. Sounds good. Okay. So Lily says people signified, and this is like in the 17th century, so like half of it, some of it doesn't make sense in our context, but just bear with me. You don't know any scriveners, Chris? <laughs> I mean, I might. I don't know. I, they, <laughs> usually they don't like tell me um, when they are. So literary men, philosophers, mathematicians, astrologers, merchants, secretaries, scriveners, diviners, sculpturers, poets, orators, advocates, schoolmasters, stationers, printers, exchangers of money, attorneys, oh, that's a good one, like lawyers, mm -hmm. uh, continuing em ambassadors to emperors, uh, commissioners, clerks, artificers, generally accomptants, I don't know what that means, solicitors, <laughs> sometimes thieves, prattling money ministers, busy sectaries, and they go unlearned, grammarians, tailors, carriers, messengers, footmen, usurers. Any any questions about that? Any points about that? Uh, I just have to repeat prattling muddy ministers just yeah. one more time for, for the folks you've, in the back. You've met, <laughs> met, met a lot of those. I've, you know, just around every corner, all right? Um, right. Okay, so Mercury... Uh, Mercury's manners when well-dignified. When well-dignified, Mercury represents a man of subtle and political brain, intellect, and cogitation, an excellent disputant or logician, arguing with learning and discretion, and using much eloquence in his speech, a searcher into all kinds of mysteries and learning, sharp and witty, learning almost anything without a teacher, ambitious of being exquisite in every science, desirous naturally of travel and seeing foreign parts, a man of an unwearied fancy, curious in the search of any occult knowledge, able by his own genius to produce wonders, given to divination and the more secret knowledge. If he turn merchant, no man exceeds him in a way of trade or invention of new ways whereby to obtain wealth. Oh man, there's so many good ones in there that I, I want to talk about. And I want to pause, but here I'll finish the last paragraph and then we can go back. So then Lily says, manners when Mercury is badly placed. He says, a troublesome wit, 
a kind of frenetic man, his tongue and pen against every man, wholly bent to spoil his estate and time in pratting and trying nice conclusions to no purpose, a great liar, a boaster, prattler, busybody, false, a tale-carrier, given to wicked arts, as necromancy and such like un ungodly knowledges, easy of belief, an ass or a very idiot, constant in no place or opinion, cheating and thieving everywhere, a newsmongerer, pretending all manner of knowledge, but guilty of no true or solid learning, a trifler, a mere frantic fellow, if he prove a divine, then a mere verbal fellow, frothy of no judgment, easily perverted, constant in nothing but idle words and bragging. Um, I think he had a like a grudge against like a Gemini or something at one point. <laughs> These um, are like just prime like Twitter display names. I'm so sorry. I know. I, I All like of the, them. <laughs> I want to put like change my to my Twitter description to like frothy of no judgment. I really support that so much. Okay. Um, so these are really good. What's funny is like a lot of them, it's hard sometimes because of the 17th century English to know fully what he's talking about. And you kind of need some of them translated, but some of them are actually very still relatable and are still like basically essentially what, not just what astrologers will say today in like the early 21st century, even if they've never read like William Lilly, but they're things that sometimes you'll see as you know, that's actually still true in certain charts today, some of the positive things and some of the negative things. Yeah, yeah. Um, a kind of frenetic man. I love that spelling. But also, there can be this kind of like high nervous energy or high strung kind of quality with um, prominent mercuries or like very mercurial folks. Um, so that stands out to me as something that is still relatable today that makes sense today. Um, his tongue and pen against every man. That's another one to kind of this idea of like being argumentative or just like going beyond wanting to play devil's advocate and just like enjoying disagreement <laughs> in some in some way, shape or form can be kind of a more negative leaning Mercury manifestation. Yeah, or one of them that he sort of is alluding to here is like spreading rumors about people or like talking about people behind their back or something like that. Like somebody who who talks a lot or or talks bad bad things in some way. Yeah. And interestingly, um, on the other side of like spreading rumors or like falsehoods, the he also says um easy of belief, which I believe by that he means gullible. So like um kind of will fall for things or could fall for the falsehoods too. It's like an interesting other side of that coin too. Right. Um, there was one in here that was talking about like the ability to sort of figure things out on their own or being mm. um, good at uh, sort of learning things or self-education. And that ties into an episode that I just recorded a couple of days ago where uh, with Claire Moon, where we talked about one of the things about being a self-employed astrologer is having to like learn or have many different hats and like learn many different things in order to do astrology. Basically, you've got to learn like counseling. You've got to learn sometimes like website, how to run a website, or how to record audio or video, or how to use social media, or like twenty other things. 
um, because there's so many things built into astrology. So that sometimes that can be one of your greatest assets is, is an ability as an astrologer to um, teach yourself and to be good learning on your own without necessarily anybody holding your hand. A hundred percent. That's so true. Yeah. So what are some other things that are uh, good here about Lily's significations? Let's see. I really love ambitious of being exquisite in every science as a way to say like really curious about things and enjoys mm. getting good at multiple different things. <laughs> yeah. That's curios- my new Twitter name. <laughs> curiosity is a great signification of Mercury. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that in that next um, little part, he mentions curious in the search of any occult knowledge. So this sort of interest or inclination towards the occult or mysteries um, and curiosity in that specific direction as well, which kind of links to astrology and divination. Mm. Definitely. And like uncovering things or uncovering hidden knowledge and having a great curiosity especially. Um, it's funny that he mentions more explicitly some of the things we were talking about earlier about sharp and witty um, and some of those like comedian-like significations that we were talking about earlier. Oh yeah, there's the one, learning almost anything without a teacher, so learning on your own. Yeah. Yeah, all of that's good. All right, so let's jump forward then. So that's like the 17th century and the end of like traditional astrology, and then astrology is like on its way out in Europe, but then it comes back in the late 19th and early 20th century. And the first like modern source I wanted to cite for significations of Mercury is Reinhold Eberton and the book The Combination of Stellar Influences, which was written in Germany in the nineteen in nineteen forty. Um, and he breaks it up into different sections. He says the principle of Mercury is the intellect and mediation. So just like right away, mediation as core meaning or signification of Mercury, which is great. He says psychological correspondence um, plus or positive is good grasp or understanding of a subject, sound judgment, critical ability, dexterity in expression and in writing, mediation, diplomacy, general intellectual abilities, and analysis. All of that is, is great. And then he says negative or minus is a lack of understanding and of objective criticism, the tendency to diffuse one's energy into too many channels, inhibitions in speech and in writing, Overdevelopment or weakness of intellect. Um, then biological correspondence, the motor nerves, speech and hearing organs, and then sociological correspondence, intellectual workers, tradesmen, agents, or mediators. Uh, so all of that is is great and very concise and very straightforward, still very clearly tied in with, you know, the the earlier tradition and and expressing that actually pretty clearly and concisely. Yes. Um, and critical ability is mentioned here. And critical thinking is something I bring up a lot with Mercury. And I can't believe like we haven't really talked about that yet. But um, yeah, critical ability or uh, critical thinking skills are also very mercurial. I love that. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, the ability to think critically and to question something and to like explore it or kind of like take it apart, just like you were talking about taking apart a clock earlier in order to see all the different pieces. It's like somebody that can do that mentally with a concept or an argument and who can like take it apart and see all of its different components and see what the parts are that are working versus what are the parts that are not working. 
Right. Um, another word along these lines is discernment. Right. Yes. Discernment. Um, yeah, that's a really good one. All right. Um, and then jumping forward, the next excerpt I have, I didn't use this for the previous two episodes, but a really good one is Stephen Forrest, The Inner Sky, which was published in 1988 as like a modern take on, on astrology. So he says, for Mercury, he says, function is intelligence, transmission of information, talking, teaching, writing, reception of information, listening, learning, reading, observing. Uh, dysfunction can be nervousness, rationalization, worry, flightiness, intellectualism, chattering, inconsistency, and hyperactivity. Key question, what are my intellectual and communicative strengths? What are my intellectual and communicative weaknesses? So we're going in more of like a psychological direction here, but it's still very much tied in with a lot of those core things that we've been talking about up to this point. Yeah, I love this because it really captures um, kind of what we might be really focusing in on um, if it's someone learning astrology for the first time, that th these very like relatable psychological functions are important as far as like beginning to gain a, a grasp of what a planet means. And they're also just very applicable, like they're very straightforward function and dysfunction. So yeah, these are great. Yeah. And I like that <clears throat> he's really focusing on two sides, especially in that first paragraph of the dual role of both the um, externalization and sending something out that is a communicative thing versus the receiving function as well, and that Mercury has those two sides to it, as we've talked about in terms of both hearing as well as talking. Absolutely. Yeah, so reading and observing are two additional good ones. Mm -hmm. um, all right, and then there's just one more, which is Richard Tarnas and his 2006 book, Cosmos and Psyche. For Mercury, he says, the principle of mind, thought, communication, that which articulates the primary creative energy and renders it intelligible, the impulse and capacity to think, to conceptualize, to connect and mediate, to use words and language, to give and receive information, to make sense of, to grasp, to perceive and reason, understand and articulate, to transport, translate, transmit, the principle of logos, Hermes, the messenger of the gods. And that just kind of brings everything full circle at this point in terms of some of those those really core concepts. Yes, I feel like every um, excerpt that we've read through that you've shared, Chris, has been every single time I've been like, oh, what a great sum up of the last one. <laughs> you know, like right. there's a lot of great continuity, um, first of all, but yeah, leave it to Richard Tarnas to, to really sum it up in these beautiful ways and cover everything uh, and articulate it so well. Yeah, totally. Um, were there anything, was there anything there I'm trying to think that we haven't covered? I mean, he's really good. The idea of like rationalizing things I thought was actually an interesting one in the last two, um, sometimes is a positive thing, but also Stephen Forrest was mentioning it as a potential downside, and I, which I thought was interesting, the tendency, or there can be a problematic type of rationalization of rationalizing, let's say, like 
bad bad behavior, for example, mm -hmm. that could be like a problematic function of mercury? Yeah, that is a really interesting point. Um, because, you know, critical thinking skills are very useful. There are these mercurial skill sets that we, you know, we, we can't really argue that they're useful, but there is a point where it can go overboard. And what I immediately think of is the idea of, um, well, I immediately think of two things simultaneously because it's Gemini season. Um, but one, one of the things is this idea of sort of like a solar knowing, like a solar, this, this solar idea of like something is illuminated, you have clarity, you have a knowing, you have a sense of purpose and um, the capacity for like decisive action. Um, there's that kind of knowing or understanding. And then there's this rationalizing or this logical approach that's like, I'm going to comb through all the details and think this through logically. I'm going to like use deductive reasoning. And those are all very mercurial ways of arriving at clarity and understanding. And I think the distinction is important. And, um, interesting to think about. And when you lean very far to the mercurial, there can be times when perhaps we could say like your heart has clarity on something um, or there is kind of a knowing, but your brain is like, let's just think about it more and maybe we'll arrive at a different clarity that's less uncomfortable perhaps, uh, depending on what it is. But that also makes me think of um, your episode with Demetra and this idea of the mind being in the heart rather than in the brain. Um, and that distinction. So I think when we when we're talking about rationalization or um, like over logicing things, essentially, it can be letting the mind or the like the brain, the thoughts take over so much that you're pulled. And this is my segue into the second thing I'm thinking about, um, kind of out of the body and into the mind. And this is where like restless thoughts come in. This idea of like the therapist says now, and where do you feel that in your body? And you're like what? <laughs> I can describe what I'm thinking, you know, that's, it can kind of be like a mind body separation type of thing, which is like, okay and fine, but it can lean a little extreme where that's when we do get sort of, you know, mental loops or racing thoughts and, um, the kind of too much mercury, like that hyper rationalization or, or overthinking, um, those kinds of things. Yeah, that was like me, for example, the, the like last night trying to sleep and just like lying there horizontally and my brain won't shut off for like three hours uh, under this this Gemini eclipse. And yeah, that is something when your like thoughts run away with you or that you can't shut off sometimes that part of your brain is sometimes like a mercury thing and it's not great functioning. Um, but also the first distinction you were talking about makes me think also of like a difference between the moon. We've talked about similarities between the moon and Mercury, but one of the major differences is sometimes like feeling something emotionally or feeling something in your heart um, or even a sort of moral component to something versus a rational like thinking through of something. And sometimes a difference between somebody can rationalize something that if they weren't like thinking of it rationally, if they're thinking more with their heart or thinking from more of an emotional standpoint, they might come to a different conclusion about something. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. 
trying to think of like actual analogies, but I'm I'm drawing a blank right now. But I feel like there's sometimes like philosophical or moral issues where sometimes people argue for more of like a rational standpoint of like, oh, well, this is obviously the correct conclusion based on this, this, and this, and we'll enumerate all these very tangible, numerical, concrete things versus like if you're approaching it from more of a human or emotional or empathetic standpoint, like having empathy can sometimes be different. Like empathy is more of a lunar function, I feel like, because it has to do with almost the adaptable quality of water and the ability to like feel other people's emotions and put yourself in another person's place and therefore develop um, a sense of sympathy as a result of that versus Mercury is more um, keeping things at arm's length and can sometimes be more dispassionate or sometimes more cold as a result of that. And I think that's part of the rationalization component. For sure. And what I think about too is the idea of this lunar receptivity when we're talking about empathy or feeling someone else's emotions or um, being able to pick up on that almost like on an instinctual level, which is very lunar too, like a body level, like a felt sense rather than a I'm thinking this through rationally sense. Um, and we could even think about Venus being a, the relational planet as far as like relating, friendship, connection, and unification, that kind of thing. Um, and the moon and Venus are both um, moist planets as far as temperament goes. And Mercury, you know, can change for sure and adapt to its environment, but is fundamentally uh, dry, which leans towards logic and rationale. And you do sacrifice something when you lean too hard into that. And it's a it's a great reminder and balance to have like some Venusian or lunar um, component in order to sort of prevent that or kind of mitigate it if necessary. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then one last thing in the, in the more positive side of that is just one of the things that was mentioned several times is like philosophers and philosophizing. And I always think that's really interesting because of what philosophy is fundamentally in like reasoning or thinking something through or sometimes being able to like ancient philosophers could sometimes come to conclusions about the cosmos or about how things work in the world, not as a result of direct observation and experimentation necessarily, but as a result of thinking it through logically and by extension, like making um, not necessarily logical leaps, but just the great ability that the mind has in order to figure certain things out by reasoning based on first principles or something like that. And that seems like a merc Mercury function as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. All right. Well, those are actually all the significations that I had to read through. So that gives a pretty good overview of basically, you know, some of the major, obviously, we skipped a lot of astrologers, but some major turning points in the astrological tradition and seeing, I feel like a lot of continuity in the astrological tradition mm -hmm. between. Um, how different authors would talk about different planets or talk about Mercury in particular, but that there seemed to be more continuity than discontinuity in terms of how astrologers have conceptualized Mercury, I think, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there is plenty of continuity there. Um, there might be some combinations we haven't talked about with planets. We talked about Mercury and its connection with like 
benefics and malefics and its connection with the sun and relationship to the moon. One of the interesting combinations, though, that's come up more recently in modern times is connections with newly discovered planets or like relatively newly discovered planets such as Uranus or Neptune or Pluto. And that might be something we mentioned really quickly in passing. Um, like Mercury, Neptune, for example, are funny because those are two of the most like antithetical combinations. And I think as a result of that often gets a bad rap. And I know, for example, in forecast episodes, I'm sometimes um, given it too much of a bad rap. Um, recently, we had like Mercury station retrograde square Neptune. But one of the issues I think that makes that a difficult combination, especially in hard aspect, is just if Mercury's core function is to convey things, if I could come up with like a core function of Neptune, it would be to make things less clear or to like cloud things in some way. And so that becomes antithetical because when you put Neptune and Mercury together, it can sometimes make communication less clear for some reason. Right. Um, oh, Mercury and Neptune. What I think about so often is this idea of like Mercury really likes to make distinctions between things and be like, yeah, this I took this clock apart and this is the part that does this and this is the part that does this. And Neptune right. is like, we are all one. You are the clock. Like right. Mercury's like, what? <laughs> like it can feel like that mentally. I don't know if it's that way for you, but it can feel that way to me. Um, just this idea of distinctions and lines and boundaries being blurred, um, which can sometimes lend itself to like some really amazing um, creative juices flowing or like divine inspiration. Um, but sometimes it can just be really confusing <laughs> or be kind of um, feel kind of paranoid or like you're stuck in a fog or like you have this brain fog where it's hard to do the mercury thing, um, like discern and think critically and reason something out, figure something out. There can just be sort of like a haze over that with Neptune. Um, that's This is where sort of Neptune significations like surrender really come in handy. Um, just kind of accepting with which variables you can and cannot control in those situations where Neptune and Mercury are both involved. Yeah, definitely. I found um, really recently there was this amazing, and I'm desperately trying to find this tweet really quickly so I can give it um, proper proper attribution, but some astrologer posted how like the first time that a, like a scientist took acid ever and like Neptune was right on the ascendant. And I thought that was <laughs> such a, a brilliant like example of Neptune and just like the dissolving of reality and the boundaries of perception and things like that. That's gonna like be in my like top 10 like most literal astrology manifestations ever. It's so literal. That's perfect. Yeah, I am having trouble finding that really quickly. So whoever found that, shout out to them. Um, but yeah, so Mercury Neptune on the plus side, like Mercury Neptune can be it can be very good, similar in some ways to like Mercury Venus at um creating a, a sort of false reality or false illusion that can be very aesthetically appealing and very pleasing um in some way in terms of the speech or ability to communicate having this like gloss or this illusion over it that can be very um engaging and um yeah like sort of deceptive but in a positive way it's just that the downside can be deceptiveness in a bad way at the same time 
Right. Like think about incredible films that like transport you to another world or books that transport you to another world and like kind of time stops, your reality fades away and you're totally immersed. Like that's a wonderful Mercury-Neptune combination there for sure. Right. Definitely. Um, all right. And then Mercury-Uranus um, combination, sometimes it brings that quickness because Uranus is also like a very fast planet. It can sometimes do things like way fast and accelerate it. And when put together with Mercury, both which both signify things that move kind of fast, um, it can accelerate things or um, move communication and make it even quicker than it was previously in some way. Sometimes that's like through technology or technological means. Absolutely. And I think of changing direction quickly as well, like the sort of lightning strike where suddenly um, you're going this whole different direction that you didn't predict, couldn't have predicted, or couldn't have seen coming is very uh, Uranian. And then Mercury is a planet that is known for changing direction frequently and that sort of changeability. So when you put the two together, it can be kind of dazzling in that way or frazzling sometimes. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning both with Mercury, Uranus, uh, configurations as well as Mercury-Neptune configurations that I'm, I'm thinking about Mercury's natural adaptability and how different people experience different combinations and particularly transits different ways. Um, if you are the kind of person with a natal Mercury placement that does lean towards critical thinking and discernment, those Neptune transits might be really uncomfortable for you because they might feel very foreign. Um, if you have a very, you know, grounded Mercury, a Mercury-Uranus transit might feel very uncomfortable. Like someone um, plugged your brain into an outlet and your thoughts are racing when you're used to maybe a little more mental calm. Um, but yeah, it's it's just worth mentioning that, that because of the, the huge range of people or of experiences people can have with Mercury, the transits can be sort of similar. Like if you are a very creative, um, like, Mercury Venus conjunction and Pisces person, a Neptune transit might just be absolutely wonderful. You might be writing constantly or creating constantly and feel very attuned and in sync with your um, artistic side. So just throwing that in there too. Totally. Um, and I found that tweet. So it was by oh nice um, at space Astro, space Astro on Twitter. And they wrote, today I learned that the guy who invented LSD recorded the time and date he first intentionally ingested his creation. It wasn't hard to find the location, so I drew up a chart. Please enjoy the amazing astrology of the first ever acid trip, and it has the ascendant at 25 Virgo and Neptune at 29 Virgo. And I'm sure there's like other stuff going on in this chart, but that's like the part that I, I love the most. It's just like Neptune rising, because uh, that's just a, such a great descriptor of, of Neptune. I know, in Virgo, no less. It's like, oh, all right. these distinctions that you thought were real and concrete, let's dissolve all those. <laughs> yeah, and your reality just like dissolves into this colorful um, menagerie of like different shapes and, and colors and lights and everything else. Yes. Yeah, and, and suddenly you can like feel light and sound and, and things like that. Yes, it's, it's so good. Anyway, good times. Um, so that's a good... Oh, yeah, and then back to Mercury, Uranus. One downside is that um, with the quickness or the other side of the quickness is sometimes it can be destabilizing or things that move too quick and are unstable or disruptive in some way. 
so that there can be like a disruptiveness to the communication or the communicative quality of Mercury uh, for some reason? Yeah. Uranus is not really known to be the most stabilizing planet, <laughs> to put it really mildly, uh, quite the opposite. Breakdowns and breakthroughs are like, those are two words that are very commonly used with Uranus transits. Um, so yeah, there is a massive unpredictability when it comes to Mercury-Uranus. But one thing I thought of as well is this idea of like um, originality or inventiveness, like this mercurial curiosity with this Uranian like um, strike of inspiration. Like sometimes the thing that came out of the blue that you couldn't have predicted is like an idea that you could not have conceived of um, until it hit you or kind of landed in your mind. Um, and Mercury can be a great messenger for that, a great communicator of a great idea. But one thing to keep in mind too, um, and this is something I've heard you all talk about like on the forecast episodes at some point, I'm sure, this idea that the outer planets are, they're not like the, the traditional seven planets. They are beyond in a way. And I personally tend to think of them as like, um, I do all, I do a lot of narrative astrology work. So I'm often imagining the planets as like figures or people, which I think is really common. I think most people do this to a degree, but I always imagine the outer planets as perhaps like, um, beings of some kind, like not exactly human, like whether they're supernatural or spiritual or whatever. Um, and there's this idea that that's a lot of energy for a human, like, a like a, transfusion or transmission or download, whatever you want to call it, um, a lot of contact with an outer planet can be hard to hold. Hence where like disturbance can come from with Uranus or whatever. Um, but that's just something I guess worth mentioning when it comes to like Mercury, Uranus and the destabilization. Like it, it reminds me of like just like too much electricity being pumped into something until it just kind of like goes boom. Yeah, I'm thinking of like Dr. Manhattan and like the Watchmen comic, uh, mm -hmm. like wandering into a, you know area and getting like pumped full of electricity and then exploding because his body couldn't couldn't handle it. Yeah, that. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Um, that is what you can feel sometimes <laughs> under a Uranus transit, but sometimes that can be like because you suddenly discover something, or you know, some people have like a Uranus transit when they're going through discovering something like astrology or something like that, uh -huh. and suddenly they're just overwhelmed by this sudden revelation of a, this amount of information or a new perspective that they never expected that suddenly changes the, the world for them or changes their conceptualization of the world, and that can feel overwhelming beyond what, what they can possibly handle at that moment in their life. But sometimes it can also rapidly expand your world in a way that you didn't even realize you could pull off or, or could handle. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So one last thing is something this is bringing up for me as we're going through the outer planets is it's just making me think that sometimes one of the core principles of what we're doing when we're talking about planetary combinations is we're looking for areas where there's similarities or overlap between two planets' significations. Because when there's overlap, then there'll be like a doubling up of the significations so that it like um, magnifies or exacerbates that tendency. So for example, two things that we're talking about here is like Mercury's tendency to move quick and then Uranus's tendency to like speed things up or move very quick. And then when you put those together, it's just indicating something that moves very, very fast at like light speed. 
Um, so sometimes there's combinations that accentuate each other. Other times there's combinations that are antithetical in some ways, where one of the significations of the planets actually does the opposite in some way of what that planet does. So for example, Mercury signifying communication and Saturn signifying like boundaries or obstacles or difficulties. And so you literally get like an obstacle to communication or a hampering of speech or of hearing or something like that. Um, or alternatively, another antithetical combination is like we're talking about Mercury trying to convey something or communicate, whereas Neptune making things muddy or less clear. And so what you get with is a um, a lack of clarity of communication or a lack of clarity in speech, um, which is kind of an antithetical thing. So that's probably a broader, just interpretive principle as we're thinking about going through planetary combinations. It's just areas of overlap and doubling up in emphasis versus areas of a canceling out or an antithetical quality and that producing something that's distinct or that really stands out. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Um, and this actually reminds me, we we haven't talked much about Mercury-Jupiter. Like I know we've already been talking a lot, but that's one thing just worth mentioning. Um, Mercury is in its um, antithesis or detriment and fall in uh, Pisces and in its detriment in Sagittarius. And those are Jupiter-ruled signs. So there's sort of like a natural um, polarity between Mercury and Jupiter. You know, Mercury thinking very small, very focused on the details, very focused on reason and logic. And then Jupiter with this broader perspective, thinking in big picture terms, um, thinking about the broad strokes. And one thing I always think about is like, Mercury wants to know the data, like what's what's the information? Like show me the spreadsheet. And and Jupiter's like, I really don't want to see the spreadsheet. Tell me like what's the truth in what you're communicating? Where's the wisdom? Um sort of a more like they're both very mind planets in their own ways, but Ju Jupiter focuses more like um on these broader kind of more almost spiritual and religious concepts or scales. Um, it really is a difference in scale. Um, so that's just something interesting to think about too. Yeah, that's a really great point. And the more like Mercury is a tendency in like with the Virgo and Gemini side to like rationalize things, whereas mm -hmm. um, Jupiter might have more of a tendency to um, look for the overarching Philosophy in some sense, or or sometimes even like the you know the Pisces function, the more spiritual or like religious component to things. Yeah, and there's um, that reminds me. There's also Jupiter's significations of faith and belief, and Mercury mm. leans more towards uh, skepticism and wanting to kind of figure it out or reason it out. Um, so that's another way that they're they're very different. I have got. I'm just doing a quick search through solar fire. And just as a digression, like this is another reason why having astrology software like SolarFire is so awesome because I've been like building up for years just a database so that when I'm doing talks like this or doing research and I want to know like who in my files has like Mercury conjunct Jupiter, I could just like do a search and like it spits out like 20 examples of that. So um, one great example of a Mercury Jupiter conjunction in Virgo is, was the astrologer Tim Terriger. Who was the founder of the Mountain Astrologer magazine? And oh, he had Leah rising with Mercury at two degrees of Virgo, conjunct Jupiter at six degrees of Virgo. 
and he founded in the 1980s um, a magazine. I think during or just after his Saturn return, he founded a magazine for astrology, so a print magazine for astrology. And um, he I interviewed him at one point. We talked about his life, and sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago. So you can find that in the episode's archive, the episode for the Mountain Astrologer magazine. But um, that's a really good just example of a Mercury-Jupiter conjunction. And one of the things that he did was he brought this broadness to the astrological community. In some ways, what he did with the Mountain Astrologer magazine is sort of like a template for what I've tried to do with the podcast, because he uh, would bring so many different voices and such a broad array of different astrologers and have them write articles for or invite them to write articles for the Mountain Astrologer magazine and bring it into print and sort of make it tangible in this written form um, every month. But I think that Jupiter part with Mercury is part of the broadness to it, where it wasn't just like one type of astrology, but instead TMA has always been really good at providing a broad overview of the many different traditions of astrology and like having you know, evolutionary astrology and traditional astrology and Vedic astrology and whatever um, as a result of that. So sometimes when the Mercury-Jupiter function is doing well together, it can unite both the, the small picture thing as well as the big picture view into one nice little combination. Absolutely. Um, that's such a great example, too, because I mean, first of all, it's so very mercurial. It's an astrology publication. <laughs> it doesn't get more Mercury or Virgo than that. But you're so right, that Jupiter component of um, kind of inclusion and making sure that the variety displayed like highlights the the specialness and the gifts offered by so many different kinds of astrologers and astrology, um, whereas just purely Mercury and Virgo could be um, really hyper-focused. So there's that like counterbalancing of Jupiter's broad perspective um, and understanding what's meaningful about having that perspective and what's meaningful about creating that publication, that magazine. Um, meaning is a big Jupiter thing where sometimes I feel like Mercury just likes to play and just likes to like dabble and mess around and get curious about something Jupiter brings in that meaning component, uh, which just tends to make some really special things, um, no doubt with TMA. Yeah. And another good thing that brings up with Virgo and, and Mercury and Virgo that really excels more than anything else is Virgo placements is um, editing. And like if you've ever written something and worked with an editor, just the ability an editor has to see the flaws in what you've written and to be able to tell you exactly and precisely what you need to change to improve what you're trying to convey. Um, it's one of like the best most heightened like uh, sort of manifestations of Mercury and Virgo placements is that ability to see the flaws in something, but also see how to improve it in order to better convey something. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, one other Mercury-Jupiter conjunction really quick is Alois Trendle, who's the founder of Astra.com or Astrodienst, which is like where most people for like the past 20 or 25 years have like gotten um, chart calculations from. And they also created the Swiss Ephemeris, which is like the ephemeris that pretty much every astrology program runs on at this point, including Solar Fire and most apps like Astro Gold and everything else. So he has 
Taurus rising and a nice little Mercury-Jupiter conjunction in Aquarius in the 10th house. Oh, perfect. I love that. Yeah. And then one last one really quickly. It's a little bit wider, but um, another Mercury-Jupiter conjunction that came up for me in my search was Richard Tarnas, who actually has Gemini rising and Mercury is up in Aquarius in the in the ninth house. And it's in a conjunction or a sign-based conjunction, a co-presence with both Venus and Jupiter in the ninth. And I love that one just because he has such like a breadth of learning. And, you know, he wanted to write in like the 1980s or something, he wanted to write a book on astrology, which eventually became Cosmos and Psyche. But before he could get there, he realized he needed to write a history of like the history of Western thought. So as like an afterthought, he published the passion of the Western mind, mind in like the early 90s. And then it became like a hit book that was like assigned in many Western um, philosophy courses and things like that as like a great book covering just like the history and development of Western thought. But then that was just like a precursor to this big book on astrology where he tried to like make the case for uh, astrology being a legitimate phenomenon by showing how especially outer planet combinations and alignments would coincide with important turning points in world history. And he tried to provide this very like big picture world overview of how astrology was relevant in the context of Western society. Uh, it was also a very thick and very wordy book, which is sometimes something that can happen with Mercury-Jupiter conjunctions as they can be very wordy. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's great, though. How perfect that that uh, that stellium there is in the ninth house with the midheaven, yeah. no doubt. I love that. Um, yes, and he was a famous, famous astrologer. Um, all right, I think we're coming to its what, two hours and five minutes. So that's a pretty solid discussion about Mercury. And, and in order to not fully Mercury Jupiter it ourselves, this might be a good <laughs> a good time to start winding down. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I meant to say in terms of the basic meanings of Mercury or anything else, but we've covered a surprising amount of ground here going through like 2,000 years of Western astrology and astrologers discussing the significations of Mercury. We have. Uh, we have. I actually have one question for you because I was trying to figure out what this was from last night. Um, the the essential functions of the planets, such as the sun selects, the moon collects, because Mercury destabilizes and contests. Is that right? Where where is that from? <laughs> I can't remember. So that was um, part of Robert Schmidt. Robert Schmidt looked at like Valens' significations, and he saw that there were. Well, part of it was that Rhetorius of Egypt in the sixth or seventh century gives. Um, when he's talking about the basic meanings of the planets, he shows he talks about the domicile assignments, and he shows how some planets in the domicile assignments are set up so that they have opposite meanings, and so he contrasts like um, Mars indicating like war and strife, and Venus representing like love and and things like that, and then he does a similar um, contrast of opposites with the exaltations, and shows how. Part of the rationale for the exaltations is that the exaltation lords have opposite or contrary significations, or that some of their significations are contrary. So Schmidt looked at a bunch of the significations in Valens and noticed that there were a bunch of core opposing significations and um, uh, came up with a, a list of core meanings based on that. Um, so that's part of that. Those were his, um, his oppositions 
where he showed that Jupiter typically represented like confirmation, the confirming of things and stabilization of things, but in opposition to Mercury, where Mercury sometimes played like a disruptive function of um, you know, throwing things up in the air. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I think about that a lot, the with the Mercury and Jupiter kind of I opposition's not the word I'm looking for, but contrast. Um, you know, Jupiter affirming and stabilizing and Mercury kind of destabilizing and contesting the idea of Mercury being the planet that would be like, well, how do we know that's true? Or like, well, why why do you believe in that? Or like, let's test it and see. Um, and this actually reminds me a lot. Um, I noticed this in one of my last rereads of Lord of the Rings. Um, for for those not familiar, um, Gandalf is essentially the good wizard and Saruman's like the the wizard that turns bad and is a traitor. Um, but Saruman is basically a very mercurial figure in a lot of ways. And there's a quote from Gandalf where he says, um, he who breaks things to find out how they work has left the path of wisdom or something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But just that seemed like a very Jupiter to Mercury kind of exchange. Um, Mercury being willing to be like, well, let's take it apart. Like, let's break it and see if we can fix it, you know? And that being kind of like a destabilizing, um, curious approach that can be kind of lacking empathy sometimes, um, rationalizing. If we want to go back to that signification, Saruman thinking, well, you know, if we can't beat him, join him, essentially. And um, this idea that that's leaving the path of wisdom and that being a very Jupiterian idea, how do we stabilize? How do we affirm? Um, how do we look at the bigger picture and and keep a sense of um, of morals and principles, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I always think of that um, sort of essential function idea from Schmidt and then that Lord of the Rings quote. I couldn't resist throwing in a Lord of the Rings quote today. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Um, and I have a little modified, I've I sort of modified and changed a little bit of the significations of Schmitz, but this is what I came up with in my book, Hellenistic oh, Astrology, yes. the Study of Fate and Fortune, which consequently is available in fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> uh, so the principle of the sun is to emit, and the moon's principle is to receive, and that's opposite to Saturn's principle in Capricorn and Aquarius to exclude and to reject. Then Mars and Venus, the principle of Mars is to sever and separate, and it's opposite to Venus's principle in its two signs of Taurus and Libra to unify and reconcile. And then Jupiter affirms and stabilizes in Sagittarius and Pisces, and it's opposite to Mercury's principle of to destabilize and to argue. Because one of the interesting things about Mercury is also it signifies lawyers. And if you think about like lawyers mm -hmm. making an argument and how that's really the function of a lawyer, whether they're making like a case, let's say defending somebody who deserves to, to be defended versus, you know, it's interesting in the American legal system how even if somebody um, did the crime or something like that, the lawyer's job is still to make the best case that they can to defend that person and to like argue the merits of that case as far as they can possibly take it. And that's such an interesting mercurial sort of role to play. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so perfect. Yeah. So I don't think these are like the only significations of Mercury and that Mercury's function sure. is only to destabilize and to argue. 
But those, that is one interesting sort of contrast that Mercury plays in terms of that and in terms of its function opposite to some of Jupiter's functions. Yeah, for sure. That's a great diagram. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, thanks for mentioning that. That was a good thing to mention. Um, all right. Well, I think we I think we've done it. I think this was a great discussion about Mercury and the significations of Mercury. I didn't know how this was going to go going into it. I had to get a little <laughs> caffeinated before this episode due to lack of sleep. Doing this on the day of a, a solar eclipse in Gemini that happened this morning, but this worked out really well, and I'm really glad that we did it. So thanks for thanks for joining me today. Where can people find out more information about you or things that you have coming up or work that you're doing? Um, yeah, I you can find me at joegleason.com. That's my website. Um, I do offer consultations, but those are uh, closed right now. They'll be open either mid to late July. Um, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at just Joe Gleason. That is my name, but with J-U-S-T before. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot. I got a lot of Mercury and Virgo stuff, so <laughs> I'm obviously on the Bird app. So that's where you can find me. Oh yeah, the bird app. That's a that's a, actually a great. I think there's like a Mars um Mercury conjunction or something like that in the chart of Twitter. Is that is oh, that what it is? Am I remembering correctly? Yeah. I don't even funny. know. I don't even have to confirm. I just believe that at face value. You just feel it in your bones <laughs> that that's a true statement. I really feel that. Yes. Yeah. Um all right. Well, thanks for for joining me for this today. People should check out your website. I'll put a link to it in the description below this uh video or on the description page on the Astrology Podcast website and you'll be back again, I guess is it like next week now or in a week or two, we're going to be recording the forecast for July? That's right. Yes. Um, and thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. It's like my dream to like just come talk about Mercury with someone for two hours. So I really appreciate you having me. This was great. Yeah. Thanks a lot for joining me. All right. Thanks everyone for watching this episode or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, Issa Sabah, Morgan McKenzie, and Jake Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Special thanks also to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, Astrogold Astrology Software for the Mac operating system, which is available at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 for a 15% discount, the Portland School of Astrology, available at portlandastrology.org, Astrogold Astrology app for iPhone and Android, which is also available at astrogold.io, and finally the Solar Fire Astrology software program for Windows, which you can get from alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount.